Well, each new ministry season, and for us, uh, that is September and January, we love being able to kick off the season with this mini-series that we call Grace Stories, and this January is no exception. Um, Like that box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. When I ask people uh, to consider giving their grace story weeks, maybe a couple of months in advance, I never know if three people, our goal, will have the courage to share their story, to be vulnerable in front of 500 people on a Sunday morning. And it's never a question of who happens to be ready, like the ripe fruit that has the season. It's never a question of readiness, because who among us is ready to um, share so transparently in front of so many people on a Sunday morning? And yet, every follower of Jesus Christ is ready in a certain sense, because the story is not about us. It can't be about us. If the story is merely about us, it becomes a tale of brokenness and rebellion and lack of faith and sinful straying. It's a problem without a solution. And you ask an English teacher, a literature professor, that doesn't make for a good story, a problem without a solution. But the real story, the one worth telling, is not about me. It's not about these three grace story givers this month. It's about the God who is at work in our lives, making all things new, renewing and restoring, shining light on what is dark. For these first three Sundays of 2019, we happen to have three men giving their grace story. I don't plan these things. I ask people I'm ministering to whether they consider giving their story. Uh, other people, to borrow a term, uh, get volunteered by staff members, elders, uh, other counselors. Uh, people I've asked uh, who have said no before, I ask again. Uh, God stirs the heart and produces the crop. It's three guys but it's really three different stories. And yet, all will display the heart of a God who saves and heals and forgives. This morning, Josh Clune is here to share his story. Josh is a member of Grace Redeemer Church. He is home on Christmas break from college, lives here in Fairlawn. And his is a story of a young man who saw faith in God as a faulty intellectual exercise and yet somehow got pulled into the story of salvation. Thanks, Josh. It hasn't yet been a full year since I became a Christian. For the vast majority of my life, I was an atheist that understood religions to be sets of beliefs about God and the arguments that entailed them. As I saw it, there were atheists like myself that didn't fall for any of the proofs for God, people that mistakenly thought that they could prove that God existed, and people that didn't think about their religion very much. I didn't have much to say to that last group, but I enjoyed arguing with the people that thought that they could prove God existed. It was a neat little exercise in figuring out what I thought the problem was. I didn't have anything to fear in these conversations, though, because I was confident, confident that I both uh, knew all of the ways in which people justified their belief in God and that I could respond to any of them. So when I first came to college my freshman year and struck up a conversation with a Christian that lived in my dorm, I wasn't at all, uh, like... I had nothing to fear. I was expecting the usual arguments, same old, same old. But the conversation that followed, the conversation that first set me down the path toward eventually becoming a Christian, wasn't what I expected. Not at all. 
Rather than gain any argument or justification, I instead got a story. I was told the story of Nicodemus, a teacher and ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus supposedly seeking to learn from him. Nicodemus acknowledged that Jesus was a teacher from God, but he came to him by night uh, when no one would be around to see him rather than by day. Acknowledging Jesus publicly during the day would have been a statement that he, despite being among the religious elite, needed to learn from some common man. If Jesus being a teacher from God were qualification enough, then there should be no issue. But Nicodemus still came by night. This certainly didn't escape Jesus, and he immediately called Nicodemus out, saying that he must be born again. Nicodemus was a teacher and a ruler himself, not some uneducated and unspiritual man, so to be told that he needed to be born again wasn't what he expected, not at all. Fixated on Jesus' unorthodox and unexpected claim, Nicodemus entirely missed the point and wasn't going to understand anytime soon. It was then pointed out to me that the story could have easily ended there. Here we had the picture of someone not only unreceptive to instruction, but also unwilling to even admit that they didn't understand, lest it result in their shame. The point could easily have been that unless if one is willing to humble themselves for needed instruction regardless of what it is or who it comes from, they will forever be blind to what really matters. A plenty reasonable story about the necessity of humility. But though it would have been entirely reasonable and natural to stop, Jesus' instruction continued. Jesus didn't leave Nicodemus where he was. First, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is referencing a story that Nicodemus would most certainly have known. He had the whole uh, Hebrew Bible memorized, I'm sure. But uh, Jesus was using it in a way that was rather peculiar, in a way that Nicodemus wouldn't have understood, to prophesize his own crucifixion. He told Nicodemus not only that this would happen, but why it would happen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Finally, Jesus spoke directly to the man that came to him by night rather than by day. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Jesus' last recorded words to Nicodemus aren't just a condemnation. They're also an invitation. Naturally, Nicodemus didn't understand any of this at the time, and likewise, I didn't get much out of it either. I was still caught up on why there was anything particularly impressive about prophecies in a book where the author obviously knew how it ended. The whole bit about how the story would have been different had it been cut short was lost on me. All stories are different if you cut them short. Uh, And the underlying display of unconditional grace was all but ignored fixated on how any of this had anything to do with a belief in God, I entirely missed the point and wasn't going to understand anytime soon. I'm sure it was quite frustrating for the person with whom I was speaking, but though it would have been entirely reasonable and natural to stop, our conversations continued. I wasn't left where I was. We see Nicodemus twice more in the Bible. The first time when the Pharisees were seeking to capture Jesus, Nicodemus very meekly tried to interject that Jesus should probably get some semblance of a fair trial, but he's immediately shot down and has literally no impact whatsoever. The attempt is feeble to say the least, so much so that it's honestly laughable. But however slight, there was progress. The second time is after Jesus' crucifixion. The things Jesus had prophesied to him in that first conversation had come to pass, and their, and their effect, uh, the, the effect the realization had on Nicodemus was radical. 
The same man, previously unable to come to Jesus by day, was now all but throwing away his social standing by standing up and publicly aligning himself with the man deemed fit for execution. With Nicodemus finally stepping into the light, Jesus' last words to Nicodemus were fulfilled. Emphasizing these things, of course, had little impact on me. Jesus had prophesied his rising up to Nicodemus beforehand, so of course once it happened, he would change his mind about Jesus. I couldn't see why there was anything to marvel at there. And more importantly, I still couldn't see what any of this had to do with a belief in God. Uh, Where is the argument? You've just told me a story. Uh, Still, the conversations continued. I was introduced to another Christian who would also read the Bible with me, and later he introduced me to more Christians yet. And for a time, I was just kind of passed around as various people tried to reach me. Eventually, I finally came to understand that these people weren't trying to prove something to me. They weren't trying to have an argument. They weren't trying to say, this is why you need to believe. They just wanted to share something that they had come to cherish. The progress was slight, so much so that it's honestly a little bit laughable, but there was progress. I don't think I've ever been able to properly explain or even fully understand the point at which I would say I became a Christian. It's rather frustrating, actually. I've prided myself on being someone that can not only clearly articulate what I believe, but why I believe it. I can outline for you the reasons that I have for the positions that I hold, the ways in which they interact with one another, and the things that you would need to demonstrate to me in order to change my mind. It's all very clear-cut. I understand myself, and I, I pride myself on that. Uh, so when I look back on my conversion, I want to find some tangible explanation, some argument, some justification that it's reasonable for me to be standing here before you. But when I look back, I find that Jesus didn't speak to Nicodemus on his terms, and God didn't debate me on mine. So for that reason, when, I, when asked to speak about what made me a Christian, I don't come with any argument or justification. I just want to share something that I've come to cherish, both Nicodemus' story as well as my own. Josh, let's pray again. Lord, thank you for uh, sustaining him this morning. Thank you for giving him the courage to continue to uh, stand here twice this morning and testify to what you've done in his life. As he returns to school in the next few days, Equip him to be an ambassador for Christ. Equip him to uh, pass on not arguments, not logic, but the truest of all stories of the Savior who has come and is coming again. Continue to shape Josh into the likeness of the Savior as his story is overlaid with Jesus's. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. I uh, sort of developed this picture of a slightly younger Josh Clune uh, a year and and beyond ago, Uh, a bright young man sneering at gullible Christians who are so naive, so needy, so foolish that they believe in the God of the Bible that they need to trust in a Savior for their sin. And it's not a unique picture, such a figure, whether here in the U.S. today or uh, far away in uh, the Middle East in the first century. Josh um, featured, I could say, Nicodemus in his story, 
Nicodemus was a member of a group called the Pharisees. Uh, you heard about them twice this morning in the children's message as well. Educated, pious, influential, cultural leaders among the Jews who actively opposed Jesus. And years later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the book of Acts introduces us to another Pharisee. His name is Saul of Tarsus. This is a Pharisee who is a man on a mission to destroy. And I want to read from Acts chapter 9 the story of Saul and his, his version of what Josh described as a, a radical realization of the gospel, which prepares Saul t, uh, to become a leader the leader of, of, of the early church whom we know as Paul the Apostle, who wrote half the New Testament. Listen to uh, Acts chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Acts 9 on page 890. Acts chapter 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. <clears throat> Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, you can rescue the hopeless. You choose to rescue the hopeless out of your heart of compassion. We thank you for these true stories of the gospel at work, saving sinners. Speak again freshly to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
uh, I want to highlight three connection points between Josh's story and Saul's story. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll treat these briefly in this devotional. It, it won't be full uh, sermon length. Uh, but first, God does not take criticism personally. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In verse 4, Jesus asks this rhetorical question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when I read this, I don't know. If I've got this guy begging for mercy at my feet, a guy who has murdered and is persecuting and has the the entire church that follows me in, in a frenzy, I don't know that I get into a conversation with him. You know, um, if, if I've got Bin Laden in my sights, I don't know that I have a series of questions to ask him in dialogue first before exacting revenge or, or, or justice, I should say. And, and maybe it's because I just watched the Godfather trilogy. I don't know. But um, I don't think that there's anything that he could say that would change my intention to bring about justice, which was absolutely appropriate for this murderous little menace to the newborn church. He was disrupting all kinds of ministry, starting in Jerusalem, and now extending out to um, the, the city of Damascus. Saul thought he knew it all. Saul thought he had all the, the right answers. Saul was utterly convinced that he was justified in getting rid of these followers of Christ, and on the way to do more damage, he runs into the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As Josh's college classmates pointed out, the story could easily have ended there. For Nicodemus, he missed the point. For Saul, he hadn't gotten the point. Despite all of their pharisaical knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus could easily have let them stay in the dark, but he didn't. He showed them the way of life. He extended personal invitations to these Pharisees, these um, opponents, despite the fact that they didn't deserve that kind of grace. And the story of Josh Clune could easily have ended there. Now, he wasn't exactly going around getting Christians thrown in jail. He wasn't actively persecuting Christians. He was merely enjoying them as sport (laughs) in these intellectual sparring matches, armed with the confidence that he, Josh Clune, had truth in his corner, or, or perhaps instead he had logic and reason and science and a good dose of common sense in his corner. The story could have easily ended there but it didn't. These fellow students pursued him. They persistently shared what had transformed their lives, wanting Josh to experience the same. If you're here this morning and you are far from Christ, if you think because of your past, there's no way a a holy and perfect God could forgive you, would extend mercy to you, would want to be in intimate relationship with you. We are here as Grace Redeemer Church to tell you you're absolutely right. It would never happen. Except
except for gospel grace. Or, or, or maybe you're, you don't care. You don't believe that you deserve any forgiveness or you, you need any forgiveness because you don't grasp and understand or, or, or believe in, agree with the biblical idea of sin and the consequences of sin. But your logic, like Josh's logic of old, does not carry the day, does not write the script of human history, let alone the script of eternal salvation history that God is writing in the lives of His people. God is a compassionate God. He, he sees people rebelling against His ways. He, he sees enemies of the gospel, and yet, even still, often chooses to extend sheer grace and mercy to transform hearts from radical enmity to radical obedience and faith and delight. And as it happened with Josh, so often God draws people in through story, secondly. Um, it's fascinating when we hear grace stories. They're all, they're all different shapes and sizes. Uh, but for Josh's, it was fascinating for me to, to catch a glimpse of how God grabbed hold of Josh's heart. Uh, he didn't say this, but my guess is that this thought crossed Josh's mind at one point or another. If I ever hear good enough reasons to my questions, I might believe, but I'm pretty sure there are no good enough answers to my questions. God did not choose to take up that challenge. His pride wasn't wounded. He didn't feel the need to prove himself, to come at Josh with amazing answers that Josh never saw coming. God didn't dazzle him with knowledge beyond wonder, with insight into creation. He didn't answer all the questions rhetorically. He asked Job, where were you when the heavens were formed? God instead chose to give wisdom to these college students who basically said, listen to a story. Listen to a story. That wasn't a distraction technique. I can't speak for these students. Maybe it was. Maybe it was a little smoke and mirrors because they didn't have answers to Josh's questions. But it fits into what God has been doing throughout all of history. When Jesus asked this rhetorical question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was about to invite Saul to join him on the greatest mission ever. He was graciously offering to Saul a starring role in the drama of salvation. Jesus effectively said, I am writing the story of all of human history and I'm going to weave your little S story, your lowercase s story into mine. Invite you in. There's a saying, if you can't beat him, join him. Well, that's not what's happening here because Jesus easily could have beaten Saul. At his game, he could have brought justice to Saul. He could have ended this uh, attack against the, the Christian church. But instead, Jesus invited Saul to join him. And not only that, but to carry the plan of salvation from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Verse 15 says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. He's a unique instrument in God's hands in the first century to spread the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. 
And Jesus adds, Saul will be brought into the story of Jesus so fully that Saul's life and end is going to remind people of Jesus' life and end. Verse 16, I will show him, Saul, how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus says, here's my story. 800 years ago, they called me the suffering servant, and it came true. And as your story is subsumed into my story, that will be true of you as well. Thirdly, God almost always uses people to save the lost, to close the deal. Did you notice what Jesus says to Saul? He, he, he simply identifies himself, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he, he says, uh, he instructs him, now blind, he says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Effectively, what Jesus is telling him is, go there and you will meet my people. That's, that's part of how this is going to play out and how this problem is going to get resolved. You need to meet my people. That's what Jesus says. And most of the chapter gives us a window into this divine appointment between Saul and a Christian man named Ananias. Ananias is freaked out. <laughs> the Lord Jesus himself gives him a, a command and, and Ananias says, uh, Lord, do you know who this guy is? He's got a notorious reputation. He has, he has done a mighty mess in Jerusalem, and now he's coming our way, and you want me to do what? But Ananias does what an appropriate disciple is. He follows. He obeys Jesus. He goes where he's instructed. He finds a penitent and humbled Saul, and Ananias, as God's instrument, heals Saul of his blindness. This is a sign of Saul's conversion. For the first time, he can see the fullness of spiritual truth. Physical blindness was, was a picture of his spiritual lostness, but now he's filled with the Holy Spirit and open the eyes of the Spirit, open, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit lets him see. Here's what's amazing. Saul's conversion did not happen when he personally encountered Jesus in verses 3 through 6. Saul's conversion happened when he personally encountered a Christian man named Ananias. God almost always chooses to use his people to save the lost. I've heard testimonies of Muslims coming to faith in Christ in closed militant countries where missionaries are not allowed to go in, where uh, churches are not allowed to gather for worship, where you're not even allowed to say that you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior without getting killed. I've heard testimonies and stories of, of Muslims in these kinds of closed countries coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so often, the shape of the story involves a dream. Because even though Jesus is in the Quran and is um, officially an exalted prophet, so many Muslims never hear his name. So many of these stories involve this uh, vision, this dream of, uh, of a great man named Jesus followed by a in-the-flesh meeting of someone who is sent by God as a messenger to 
verbally proclaim the message about this Jesus, to explain, yes, you had this divine vision, now let me tell you who he is. God almost always chooses to use his people to save the lost. It was no different with Josh. God sent college students armed, not with barrels of arguments and great answers, but with the story of salvation. And now Josh's story is folded into the greatest of all stories, what God is telling through his people. What is your story? You have one. Perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the story that is being told in your life is the preface to an amazing book. Is, is the chapter just before the dramatic climax. Maybe you're like Josh from a year ago and beyond, rejecting God, keeping Him at arm's length. Maybe you have conditions for belief. If you answered these questions, God, if you showed yourself to me, if this, this, and that lined up in my life, then I would believe. But the tipping point into a life of faith will not be life circumstances working out just the way you have expected them and demanded them to. The tipping point into a life of faith won't be suddenly someone smart enough, clever enough, learned enough, answers the questions you've always had and satisfies um, that gap. That won't be the tipping point. The tipping point will be as you humble yourself and are willing to submit yourself to this truest of all stories, that the God of all creation sent God the Son to live a perfect life of obedience as a full human being and to die a substitute death on the cross and to walk out of that tomb in victory on the third day in resurrection power. The tipping point will be your willingness to listen to this truest of all stories about the heart of a father who longs to save sinners like you. The tipping point will be when the Holy Spirit enables you to see sheerest beauty, purest love. It won't come through a billboard in the sky. It will come through the Word of God, and it will come through a flawed yet grateful follower of Christ, like Josh, like me, like the person sitting next to you here in church this morning who is a walking story. And by the way, great story. By the way, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need your theology all lined up. You don't need your Bible memorized. You do need to know the story of what God has done and how God is working that story in and through your life to reach people with the life-giving message of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, stories capture our hearts. Stories fuel our imaginations. We don't need fairy tales, Lord. The truest of all tales is most marvelous, that God has become man, that you have died in our place that you've conquered sin and death, that you long for us to be with you for eternity. The truest of all tales is Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride, and it's a love story that makes 
any Hollywood romance pale in comparison. Draw us into this story to end all stories. Show us love and beauty and joy and cause us to overflow with testimony of you at work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name.